chaos, and it had been like this forever. But now, something would change. Something was stirring, waking. In the swirling mass of water, a tiny spark began to glow. And then, suddenly, it burst forth like a flaming star. Out of the spinning darkness was born a creature of light, like a man made all of fire, the one god, Ra-Atum. Ra-Atum fought. He did not want to be thrown about in this black water, and out of his thought began to grow the first land, so that he sat on the hard new ground, and from it the water fell back, and then began to surge in waves onto the first beach. Ra Atum looked about, and he realized that he was all alone. He was lonely. He still had water in his nose, and he sneezed. A tissue! And instantly there before him stood his first son, Shu. He coughed and spat water from his mouth, but pat. And before him appeared his daughter, Tefnet. Shu and Tefnet gazed at their fiery father, and they stepped back in awe. But as they did so, they slipped from the dry land into the swirling water, and instantly they were carried away into the darkness. Ra Atun cried out to his children, but there was no answer. They were lost. So he plucked one of the fiery eyes from his head, and he cast it out into the wastes of darkness to look for Shu and Tefnet. The burning eye flared through the gloom and quickly found the children of Ra Atum and brought them back to their father. Then the shining god cried tears of joy. When the eye that had returned saw that Ra Atum had already grown another eye in his head, it too began to weep, but with rage and jealousy. Ra Atum took pity on the eye, so he picked it up and gently he squeezed it until he shaped it into a female serpent. No longer did she weep. She twined her new body around Ra Atun's brow like a shining crown. Ra Atun let her stay there, for she would be his third eye, his guard against his enemies in times to come. He named her Hathor. As Ra Atun's love for his children swelled in his heart, so the land about them swelled and grew, and the waters were pushed further and further back, and so life was created, and time itself began to run. Shu and Tefnet, the first children of Ra Atum, loved each other, and in time Tefnet gave birth to twins, a daughter she named Nut, and a son named Geb. They were to form the world. Nut was the sky, and Geb the earth, but these two loved each other so fiercely that they clung together and would not be parted, so there was no space between them for anything else to be born. Ra Atum's mind was full of new thoughts that he wanted to make real, so he became angry with Nut and Geb, and he ordered their father Shu to separate them. Shu squeezed himself between them, and, standing on Geb, he sheathed with all his might until he had lifted Nut high above his head. Nut tried so hard to stay with Geb that her body stretched and arched over Shu's hands. Shu held her up by her waist so that only the tips of her toes and the ends of her fingers still touched Geb. 
Newt was pregnant with Geb's children, but so angry was Ra Atom with their selfish love that he swore that he would not allow their children to be born on any day of the year. Besides, he was busy making new children of his own. Out of his mind tumbled new beings, and they lived in the new space between Newt and Geb that was the world. Ra Atom had decided that there would be three hundred and sixty days in each year, and for each day he made a creature to live in this new world. He made birds and fish, snakes and scorpions, horses and lions, crocodiles and hippopotami. And he made many new gods. Although every living thing was different and had its own character, each creature and every god was born out of his thought, and so everyone shared some part of the nature of Ra Atum. The cleverest of these new beings who was surely born out of Ra Atum's wisdom was the god Toth. Toth gazed up at Newt's beautiful body, which stretched over the world, and he felt sorry for her. He invented a game played with black and white stones on a checkered board, which he called Synod. He challenged the gods whom Ra Atum had made to govern the days of the year to play this game with him. For every game of Synod that he won, the gods must grant him another day. Toth was too clever to lose, so when he had won five games, he had added five days to the year. In these five new days, Newt could have her children, for Ra Atum had only forbidden her to give birth in the three hundred and sixty days that he had first created. On the first day, she bore a son who wore a shining crown. His skin glowed with a golden light, and he was blessed both with the beauty of his mother, Nut, and the strength of his father, Geb. His name was Osiris. On the next day came another son, Hererus. He had a fierce and wild spirit, and he turned into a hawk and flew high into the sky, close to his mother's heart. On the third day, another brother was born, Set. Nut groaned with pain as this child came into the world, Thunder rumbled in the heavens, dark clouds covered the sky, and tears rained from her eyes and fell to the earth. Set was as ugly as the storm clouds that heralded his birth, and he was born jealous of his fine elder brother, Osiris. On the next two days came two lovely daughters, Isis and Nethys. Isis was brave and wise, and she loved her beautiful brother Osiris, while Nephthys was kind and forgiving, and so she pitied their ugly brother Set. All these children of Nut and Geb could change shape into anything they chose, but Set, whose heart was twisted with spite, could only change into monstrous, frightful things. Ra Atum had created one god who, like himself, always loved to be making things. This was Khnum who had a head like a ram's, with curly black wool and curved horns, but his body was long and smooth, with two arms and two legs. Khnum could not make things of his thoughts like Ra Atum, so with his hands he moulded figures out of clay. These figures had bodies like his own. When Ra Atum saw what he was doing, he smiled on Khnum's clay models, and on the clay heads which Khnum had not yet finished, grew faces just like Ra Atum's own face. Ra Atum breathed on them so that they came to life, 
and these were the first men and the first women. Then Ra'atam made a new god named Hapi, whom he placed under the mountains in Aswan. Here Hapi let some of the waters of Nun flow out to form the first river, the River Nile. It fed the dry red sand and so turned it to black earth, so that men and women would have a fruitful land in which to live. As time passed, the men and women had children of their own, and a race of people grew in the land of Egypt. Ra Atum loved them. He was their creator, their god, and their king, the first pharaoh. Most people date the rule of the pharaohs from a time when the two kingdoms of Upper and Lower Egypt became united in around 3100 BCE. In his History of Egypt, the Greek historian Manetho dated what he called the first dynasty or family of pharaohs from the time of the unification. However, when he listed the names of the kings of Egypt, he went all the way back to the gods and indeed to the first god of all. This traditional belief appears in other ancient Egyptian lists of kings. Some of them record thousands of years of god-kings. The Egyptian priests believed that the pharaohs, although they were certainly men, were gods too, and that when they died they joined the other gods who lived with Ra-Atum. So the ancient stories which made the rulers of Egypt an unbroken line of gods implied that all pharaohs must be gods even those who lived and ruled much later. Although all living things were shaped from the thoughts of Ra-Atum, there was one thought that he kept a secret to himself. As time passed, men came to call their creator by many different names, for each man wished to praise the god in his own way. But Ra-Atum had a name for himself that he never spoke aloud to anyone. Isis suspected that Ra-Aten possessed some secret that could be the source of all his power. One day he walked out of his palace with a procession of gods and men. As he passed Isis, he wiped a drop of sweat from his brow, which fell to the ground. No one else noticed this, but when Isis was alone, she picked up a handful of earth where the drop of sweat had fallen. She rolled it and modelled it in her hands into the shape of a snake and under her cunning fingers the snake came to life. Then she hid the snake under a stone where she knew that Ra-Atum would walk. Sure enough, when the god returned, he trod on the very place, and the tiny snake bit him on the heel. Nothing else in all his creation could have harmed him, but the poison of the snake was made of his own self, and as he felt the venom rush through his body, he began to shake with pain and fear. The people cried out in dismay, and they carried Ra-Atum back to his palace. All the wisest men and gods were called, but even Toth himself could not cure Ra-Atum of his sickness. At last Isis came to his bed and whispered to him, Father of all, I know how to charm the venom away. Tell me your true name, so that I can make a spell to cure you. I am Ra-Atum, he replied in a weak voice. I made the earth and all that live in it. Some call me Ptah, and some Amun. Some men have named me Heku, 
and son, Khepri. Isis shook her head. All these are names given you by men. I must know the secret name known only to yourself, or my spells cannot cure you. At first he shook his head, but then, as the pain spread through him like a fire, he could bear it no longer. Come the closer, child, he gasped. Promise me that you will tell no one else. And Isis promised. Then Ra Atum whispered in her ear his most secret name, and Isis listened carefully. She conjured a magic spell out of the name, and instantly the poison was driven out of the god's body, and he was healed. Ra Atum was so shaken and tired that he fell into an exhausted sleep. All the people and gods rejoiced that he was saved, but none rejoiced more than Isis, for in her heart she carried her own secret. Despite her promise, she would tell her own firstborn son the name of the Creator, and with this knowledge, in time, he would become the next pharaoh and rule over all the people and gods of Egypt. Years and years passed by, and Ra Atum began to grow old. Some of the people who had loved and honoured him in the past now secretly began to mock him, seeing him grow weak. They even plotted to overthrow him so that they might choose a new and younger king in his place. Ra Atum was the creator of all, and he could see into the hearts of men. At first he was saddened that his own children could turn against him, but then he was filled with anger. How could they repay his love with such treachery? He summoned the council of the gods to seek their advice. When all were assembled, he asked them what he should do. The gods agreed that he should punish the faithless people by sending Hathor to destroy them. So Ra Atum changed Hathor from the serpent that crowned his head into an enormous lion whom he named Sekhmet, and he sent her out into the world to punish men. The huge, deadly lions stormed about the earth, her roars sending the terrified people running in every direction. But there was no escape. All day long she seized and devoured men and women, tearing them with her fierce jaws. After a day of slaughter, half mankind lay dead, and Ra Atum began to pity the people who remained, and to regret what he had done. After all, not all men and women were wicked. So when darkness came, and Sekhmet came padding back to his palace, Ra Atum thanked her for her work, but told her it was enough, and that she should spare the rest of the people. Sekhmet would not listen. She had tasted blood, and found it to be to her liking. In vain Ra Atum pleaded with her, but it was as if she no longer heard him. She boasted to him of the killing she would undertake the next day. Then, resting her massive head on her paws, she fell asleep. While Sekhmet slept, Ra Atum went out of his palace and saw the terrible destruction she had wrought. Cries of fear and despair filled the air, and the ground was damp and stained with blood. Furiously he tried to think of a way to stop Sekhmet from finishing her task when the sun rose the following day. Seeing the blood-stained earth, an idea suddenly came to him. 
he ordered his servants to run into the orchards that lay by the river, and to pick the fruit from every pomegranate tree they could find. Then he went to the high priest at the temple in the city of Heliopolis. This one good man at least he knew he could trust. He told the high priest to summon all the serving maids in the city, and order them to brew the strongest beer they could. All night long they worked frantically, and just before dawn they had filled seven thousand jars with strong beer. Meanwhile the priests had been squeezing the bright red juice out of the pomegranates, and when all was ready, Ra Atam ordered them to mix the juice into the beer. Then they took the beer, and they poured all seven thousand jars into the fields and meadows around the city. As the first rays of the morning sun spread over the earth, they glinted on the red beer that lay in a great pool about the city walls. The people trembled in fear when they heard the heavy tread and the terrible roar of a hunting lion. Sekhmet had come out to finish her work. However, at the sight of the shining red pool, she stopped. She sniffed at what she took to be a lake of blood, and then she lapped at it with her great tongue. As the sun rose she grew hot, and the beer tasted so sweet that the thirsty lion drank and drank until all seven thousand jars were gone. The fumes of the strong beer filled her brain, and Sekhmet began to sigh sleepily. She grew so drunk that she forgot all about killing or punishing men, and she wandered home to the palace of Ra Atam, where she lay down at the foot of his throne, and she fell into a deep sleep that lasted many days. After this, once a year the people of Egypt held a feast to celebrate their deliverance from the lion, and on that day men and women could drink as much strong beer as they liked, for there was no shame in drunkenness on the feast day of Sekhmet. Although Ra Atam had forgiven them, he was still saddened by the treachery of men and women, and he decided that he no longer wished to live among them. He was tired and wished only for sleep. He began to think that perhaps the whole creation of the world had been a mistake, and he told the other gods that he was thinking of sinking back into the dark waters from whence he had been born. At this the gods protested. If Ra Atan faded away, then surely they would too, and all the world would fade with him. Did he not love his children? Besides, since Ra Atam had left them, other beings had been born in those waters. Huge and terrifying black serpents now swirled and writhed in the darkness. Only the fear of the Creator kept them there. If Ra Atam allowed himself to fade away, the serpents would rise up and devour the world. The spirit of the water, Nun himself, begged Ra Atam not to enter it. Instead, he persuaded Nut to appear to her grandfather as a beautiful golden cow. Wearily, Ra Atam climbed onto her back, and gently she carried him into the sky. To his joy, Ra Atam found that he loved the peace and beauty of the space high above the clouds. Here he created the blessed fields of peace, so that the pure spirits of good men and women could join him when their bodies had died. Each day he rode across the sky in a boat made all of gold, pushed by a faithful scarab beetle. At night, when he slept, 
He ordered Toth to stand in the sky as a great white baboon, so that his children would not be plunged into total darkness. And he scattered a trail of glittering jewels onto the belly of Nut. In this way the moon and stars were born. He ordered Nut and Ged to help Nun to keep the giant serpents safely in the black waters, for if ever they escaped, the world would come to an end. Lastly, he decreed that Shu, his eldest son, should rule in Egypt after him. For many years Shu was king, and then, when at last he ascended into heaven to join his father, he ordered Geb to assume the shape of a man and rule as the new pharaoh. When Geb, too, had ruled for many years, like Shu before him, he went into the sky to live with their beloved creator, Ra-Aten. His eldest son, Osiris, then became king in Egypt, and Isis, his sister, who loved him above any other being, became his queen. Osiris was a splendid king, wise and just. It was he who taught the people how to plant and grow crops in the black land, and from this harvest the land of Egypt flourished and grew rich. Soon Osiris went out into the world to teach other people who lived beyond the desert lands how they might harvest the fruits of the earth and grow rich too. Always Isis stayed behind to guard his power, and men rejoiced and blessed their good fortune that Ra-Aten had chosen two such wise and loving rulers for them. However, there was one who did not love the new king, Set. Although he took care always to wear a smiling face, and he pretended to love and honour his elder brother, Set waited only for the time when he might seize the crown for himself. Osiris was of too honest a nature to suspect Set of such treachery. Only Isis never trusted him, and whenever Osiris went on his travels, she watched Set more carefully than ever. But Set was patient and cunning and as time passed even Isis began to forget her suspicions. The sun shone on the bright new world, the harvests were bountiful, the king was loved by all, and it seemed as though nothing could ever harm the land of Egypt. Some people still believe that they were the children of the clay figures moulded by Hnun so long ago. Others believe that when Ra Artem shed tears of joy when Hathor had found his lost children, men had been born of those tears. Still more argued that it was a mixture of the happy tears of Ra-Artem and the jealous angry tears of Hathor that had mingled to make the first men and women. Many people liked this last story, for it was certainly true that men contained both joy and anger, good and evil. And some men had more of the jealousy and rage of Hathor in their natures than the love and happiness of Ra-Artem. It was these men that became the friends and followers of Set. One day, when Osiris had just come home from a long journey, Set invited his brother to a feast to celebrate his return. Osiris was pleased and accepted the invitation. The feast was to be held as a grand picnic on the banks of the Nile. Set did not invite any women, so Isis stayed at home, and all the other guests were picked from Set's own followers. It was a splendid feast. When everyone had eaten and drunk their fill, Set signalled to his servants, and they brought out a magnificent wooden chest, marvellously inlaid with gold and precious stones. 
Everyone crowded round to praise the delicate patterns and the fine workmanship. Set smiled, and then, as if he had just thought of it, he said, I know. Let's play a game. Who can fit into this chest? If any man can fit in it perfectly, I will give the chest to him. The guests laughed and joked as each man tried to get into the chest, but in every case they were either too short or too tall, too fat or too thin. At last only Osiris was left. Smiling, he let them lead him to the chest. He climbed in and lay back, and he found that he fitted perfectly, his head and feet just touching the ends, his waist and shoulders firmly held by the sides. Osiris was sure his brother knew exactly how tall and broad he was, and he smiled at Set, thinking that his brother must have devised the whole game as a clever way to give him a gift. Set was still smiling down at him, and crowding around him were his friends. They were laughing. Set signalled to his followers, and suddenly they brought the lid of the chest crashing down. Desperately Osiris struggled, but the box fitted about him perfectly, and he could not move at all. Set himself drove the bolts into the chest that sealed it up, and then his followers cast it into the waters of the Nile. For a while the river carried the chest away, but soon it became heavy with water, and suddenly it tipped over and sank below the surface. Osiris was drowned, and Set rejoiced, for now he would be Pharaoh and rule over the land of Egypt. Although the chest, which was now the coffin of the king, had sunk below the surface, it did not drift to the bottom of the river. Beneath the surface of the Nile are many strong currents, and the river took the body of Osiris and carried it far north to the city of Byblos. There the chest caught at last in the roots of a young tamarisk tree that grew at the edge of the water. The roots twined right around the chest so that finally it disappeared inside the trunk of the tree. With the god in its heart, the tree grew so fast and became so beautiful that it became a wonder to the people thereabouts. Hearing of the marvellous tree, Malkander, the prince of Byblos, sent carpenters to cut it down, and he ordered them to carve it into a pillar for the gatepost of his palace. When Isis learned of the murder of her beloved lord, she fled away into the wilderness. Half mad with sorrow, she cut off her beautiful hair and dressed in rags to show her mourning. But she was determined to find the body of Osiris, not believing that he could ever really die. After all, had she not schemed to learn the secret name of Ra Artem just so that she might give it to their son, and as yet they had no child. Nephthys joined Isis in her search. They journeyed farther and farther north, until at last they came to the distant city of Byblos. No one knew them for the daughters of Shu and Tefnet. They travelled simply, like two serving women. When they heard of the wonderful tamarisk tree that had been carved into the palace gatepost, Isis knew that she must see the spot where it stood, and straight away they went to the palace. There they were taken on as serving women in the household of the queen, whose name was Athenaeus. Very soon the queen noticed that Isis and Mephthys were different from her ordinary serving women. She made Isis nurse to her baby son, the young prince of Byblos. 
By now, Isis was certain that somehow the gatepost of the palace contained the body of her lord. Each day she tended the baby prince, but at night, while he slept, she threw her arms around the hard wooden pillar, and she wept for the dead king of Egypt. After a while, Isis became very fond of the baby prince whom she cared for, and she decided to take him into the family of the gods. To do this, she must burn away those parts of his nature that were not pure, and so one night she made a magical fire that burned with a cool white flame. Into this she placed the sleeping baby, who felt nothing, only stirred and whimpered slightly in his sleep. When she was sure the boy was comfortable, she left him and went to the gatepost, where she threw her arms about the wood, as was her custom. Now that night, Athenaeus was restless and could not sleep. Hearing some noise in her son's bedchamber, it was the crackling of the sacred fire, she got up and went into the room to see what it was. When she saw her child lying in a pool of flames, she screamed with fear and rushed into the room to rescue him. Hearing the cries of the queen, Isis ran back into the room, and with a wave of her hand she made the fire disappear. Athenaeus realized at once that she was in the presence of a goddess, and she fell to her knees. She begged to be told what she might do to serve the goddess, now that she knew who she really was. Isis told her that she wanted the gatepost taken to the palace. The queen was greatly puzzled by this, but she agreed. Next morning, workmen came and cut the post free, laying it down on the palace floor. Then, with great care, Isis herself took a sharp chisel, and she began to slice into the wood. Layer after layer she cut away, until, with growing wonder, the queen and her followers saw a magnificent, gleaming chest revealed in the heart of the pillar. Isis and Nephthys were given the finest ship in Byblos to carry the coffin of Osiris back into Egypt. Afraid that Set might somehow discover them, they hid in the swamplands of Buto in the Nile Delta. Then Isis turned herself into a bird and flew into the sky to seek out Ra Atem to beg him to restore life to the body of Osiris. Ra Atem listened to her story, and he agreed to her request. However, he had not forgotten the trick Isis had played on him to learn his secret name, and so, to pay her back, he allowed Osiris to come back to life for one day only, from sunrise to sunset the following day. Set had spies everywhere, and while Isis was in the heavens, somehow he discovered that the body of Osiris was hidden in the swamplands. Travelling to Buto, he changed himself into a gigantic black bull and grazed among the reeds and rushes near the place where the chest lay hidden. Nephthys sat alone, grieving for her dead brother, and waiting for Isis to return. When Set discovered her hiding place, he poured at the wet ground, sending up showers of spray. Nephthys jumped to her feet and ran away, but the bull did not pursue her. Straight at the chest he ran. Rearing up, he brought his hooves crashing down on the glittering coffin, smashing it to splinters. With his horns he stabbed down, stewing the dead body of his brother, and then he tossed him high in the air. When the body fell to earth, the bull stamped and trampled on him until he had smashed him to pieces, and then he kicked and scattered the pieces all around, 
sun parts he spitted on his horns, and then he charged around the swamp, tossing his head. Nephthys had stopped running when she realized that the bull was not chasing her. She watched as it stormed about the swamp, scattering the body of Osiris. At last the bull finished, and then it turned to look at her. It spoke, and its voice was the voice of Set. Sister, leave Isis to her stupid sorrow. She was born to love that fool, and she has always hated me. But you have been my friend. Come with me, and rule Egypt as my queen. For now Osiris can never rise again, and I am the great king indeed. But gentle Nephthys, although she had pitied her ugly brother, now hated him, and so she said nothing, only looked at him with contempt. Seeing this, Set snorted with anger, and then he left her by the ruins of the shattered coffin. When Isis returned from Ra'atum, she found Nephthys lamenting beside the broken chest, but Isis did not despair. By magic she changed both herself and Nephthys into hawks. Together they swooped around and about the swamp, collecting every part of the dead king's body. Nothing escaped their keen eyes, and before the sun set they had reassembled all of the body of Osiris. All night they prayed by the body, and with the first golden rays of the next sunrise, Osiris rose from the ground a whole man once more, with no marks of the wounds upon his body. Nephthys left them alone, and when she had gone, Isis and Osiris fell into each other's arms. All day they lay together, and when the sun finally went down, Osiris went to his last long sleep in the arms of his beloved wife. His spirit soared into the heavens where Ra-Atum welcomed him. Ra-Atum made Osiris the king of heaven, where he would rule over all the spirits of the dead forevermore. On earth, Isis was determined that the body of Osiris would never decay. Just as his soul would live on in the heavens, so his body would last forever. She begged for help from the gods, and Poth, the wise one with his nephew Anubis, came to help her. Anubis had the body of a man with the head of a jackal. Together they took the body, and cutting it open, they took out all the soft parts, which they placed in jars of salt. They rubbed more salt into the empty body, and then refilled it with sweet spices. They rubbed scented oils into his skin to keep it supple, and then they bound him in strips of white linen, until the body was completely covered. They placed him in another wooden chest, even more beautifully inlaid with gold and precious stones than the last, and on the lid they painted his head with his handsome face topped by a royal crown. This was the first mummy, a word derived from the Persian for wax, often used in preserving bodies. When they had completed their work, Isis, Thoth, and Anubis took the mummy far into the desert. Here they tunnelled into the ground and built a tomb to house it, cunningly hidden so that it might never be found. Anubis stayed close by to protect it in case Set discovered the place and tried to do it some harm. Thoth laid a curse on the door of the tomb so that anyone who tried to pass through it would be held by an invisible hand. Now Set somehow did come to learn of the secret hiding place of the tomb. 
Whether it was one of the birds of the air or a serpent that wriggled on the ground, some spy took in the news. In the dark of the night, Set turned himself into a golden leopard and slunk into the wilderness until he came to the place. However, when he tried to pass through the door, the curse of Thoth took him by the throat. No matter how he struggled, he could not break the grip. The angry leopard snarled and spat, and Anubis, hearing the noise, came to see who was caught in the trap. Seeing the leopard, and guessing that it was Set himself, Anubis took a glowing hot iron, and with it he burned the leopard's skin over and over. At last the pain was such that Set managed to struggle out of the terrible grip and ran howling into the night. Never again did he try to disturb the tomb of Osiris. Isis bore a son, whom she named Horus. As soon as the boy was born, she followed Toth's advice and set off for the marshes. To protect them, Toth sent his servants, seven scorpions, who scuttled around the goddess and her son with their tails raised, ready to sting anyone who approached them. At last, after a long journey through the desert, they arrived back at the marshlands of Buto. There, among the papyrus and the bulrushes, Isis laid her baby down and rested. The marshlands teemed with life. There were fish in plenty, birds and antelope, and many plants that were good to eat. Prince Horus grew up in this wild place as a hunter and fisherman. They lived simply but well, and Isis taught her son the manners and bearing of a king. Always she dreamed of the time when her son might be a man, and they would reclaim the high throne of Egypt and take revenge on her wicked brother Set. When Horus reached his sixteenth year, he travelled with his mother into the heavens and begged Ra-Atum for justice. A council of all the gods was called to consider the matter, and Set was summoned to appear before them. Ra-Atum himself said nothing. All the other gods agreed that Horus had been wronged, and that Set should stand down, and that the son of Osiris rule in Egypt. But Set would not give in so easily. Straight away he leapt to his feet, and pointing at young Horus, he sneered, Look at this child. Will you entrust the safety of the world to him? I am the strongest of the gods. When the sun sets at the end of each day, do you think this boy will have the strength to keep back the serpents that wait in the waters of darkness? Only I have the strength to hold them there, so the throne of Osiris should be mine. Many of the gods looked worried when they heard these words, and muttered amongst themselves. But then Isis cried out that the throne of Osiris must go only to his son. Set appealed to Ra-Atum. How will you judge this matter fairly if she is allowed to speak? You all know how she hates me. Ra-Atum nodded, and he spoke for the first time. We will go to the invisible island that lies in the middle of the Nile. Isis may not come with us. I will give orders to Nemti the ferryman, that he may not carry Isis across. So the gods went with Ra-Aten to the magical island, and Isis was not allowed to go with them. On the island, Set and the end scorned the young prince's challenge, and so the gods decreed that they should fight to show who was the strongest. Through many contests they struggled there, 
First, they changed themselves into hippopotami and fought in the river, casting up great showers of water and clashing their mighty jaws together. But neither could prove himself the strongest. Next, they raced, but neither was the fastest. Then they wrestled, but the strength of young Horus was equal to the might of Set. Each day they competed, but neither could overcome the other. All the while, Isis seethed with anger that she was excluded. At last, disguising herself as an old woman, she went to Nemti and begged him to carry her across, saying that she wished to carry a jar of sweet figs to the gods. If he would take her, she said, Nemti might keep some of the figs for himself. At first, Nemti refused, but then Isis put her hand into the jar and drew from it a beautiful golden ring. Carry me across, ferryman, she said, and this too shall be yours. The ring was very fine, and Nemti agreed. When they reached the island, Isis gave him the ring, and then she went on her way. As she came near to the other gods, she changed herself into a beautiful young woman dressed in the mourning clothes of a widow. Covering her eyes, she pretended to weep. Set was sitting apart from the others, waiting for the next contest to be announced. Seeing the young widow, he rose and said, Who are you, lady, and why have you come here? Isis fell to her knees before him and said, Oh, Pharaoh, I am a poor woman who was married to a good farmer. We had a small farm and one young son, but when my poor husband died, a stranger came and seized our land and cattle. My son protested, but the stranger is a powerful man and threatened to kill him. You are the king, the great one. Will you not protect us from injustice? A crowd of the other gods had gathered to listen to the woman's complaint. Set, hoping to impress them, said in a loud voice so that all could hear him, Do not weep, fair one. I will see that the law is upheld and this villain is punished. How dare he seize the father's lands when the son is still living? Then Isis laughed. Turning to the other gods so that they recognized her, she cried, Now will you end this foolishness, for see, he has judged himself. There was an uproar as everyone spoke at once. Set was furious as he would have attacked Isis, but quickly she turned into a hawk and flew into a tree. Horus ran up and stood before the tree ready to protect his mother. Before Set could think what to do next, Ra Atum himself rose from his seat, and the gods fell silent. Then the Creator of all gave his judgment. Set, although you were caught in a trick, the words you have spoken are no less true. Horus will be king in Egypt, and you will come into the sky and live with me. Set, son of Nut and Geb, you will be the god of thunder, and when you shout, the sky will shake, and lightning will pierce the ground, and men will fear you. Set saw that he must be content at last to obey the will of Ra Atum, and so he went with the Creator back into the sky, and never troubled the land of Egypt more. Great was the rejoicing when Isis crowned her son in the royal palace, and Horus, the son of Osiris, ruled over the land as Pharaoh at last.
When Ra Artem had left the earth to live in the heavens, each day he journeyed across the sky in his gleaming boat, the sun. But when darkness fell, when his boat dipped down under the western edge of the world, he left the sunboat and boarded another boat, the boat of night. Then he and his faithful retainers travelled right under the world, over those black waters of noon whence the Creator had first appeared. Now in these waters new and terrible creatures had appeared, the mighty black serpents of destruction. Every night they would try to destroy Ra'atham in his boat, and he and his companions would fight them off. Set, who had been such a terrible force on earth, now became a hero each night in this battle. It was his task to fight Apophis, the most gigantic of the serpents. Every night he overcame his enemy, and it was lucky that he did. For if the serpents in the black waters ever overcame the boat of Ra'atam, then the sun would never appear again, and the dark waters would rise once more and cover the earth. So every dawn was a signal that the great battle had been fought and won yet again, and all men gave thanks daily for the strength and courage of the gods. Every time a king of Egypt died, the people believed that on the night of his death he had to join Ra'atam in the boat of night and take part in the battle against the forces of darkness. When the sun rose the following day, they rejoiced, for the dead king had surely overcome the dark forces with the aid of the gods, and now he would dwell in heaven for evermore. So all kings were like Osiris, who had suffered death on earth, and then had risen again to live in heaven. And each king followed in his footsteps, and their sons, like Horus, succeeded them one after another to the throne. Also, like Osiris, every king sought to save his body from decay. One of the problems that experts have when trying to explore Egyptian history is that the ancient Egyptians themselves measured time from the beginning of each pharaoh's reign. In modern times, because of the historical influence of Christianity, the Western world dates events by measuring the years before and after the birth of Jesus Christ, B.C. and A.D. Today it is more common to use the terms B.C.E. before the Common Era and C.E. Common Era for these dates. In Egyptian mythology, when the first god Ra-Atum created everything, he also created time. As each pharaoh in ancient Egypt was believed to be a new god, they measured time as if it began again every time a new pharaoh succeeded to the throne. It is relatively easy for historians if a scribe writing about something in the reign of, say, the pharaoh Pepi I, mentioned his name. However, if he just wrote, in the seventh year of the reign of the pharaoh, it can be almost impossible now to work out which pharaoh was being referred to. This is made even more difficult by the fact that every pharaoh had five different names. He had his own given name at birth, another special name that expressed that he would live forever, two other names that described him as king of both Upper and Lower Egypt, and his god's name. The story of Isis and her trick to learn the secret name of Ra-Atum may well be a reference to this custom. At any rate, archaeological excavations show that around 3100 BCE, sizable towns were growing up along the Nile Valley. Trade was beginning to thrive in Egypt, with goods coming in from Mesopotamia to the east and from the Mediterranean in the north. 
Towns situated on the most popular trade routes profited from this growing commerce, and they began to grow into cities. The Egyptians built their houses of bricks made of mud and chopped straw. They mixed the mud and straw and then poured the mixture into moulds. The moulds were placed in the sun to bake into hard bricks. Because they built their towns in the black land, they had to be built on hills, or land that was higher than the floodwaters, so the land itself was scarce and precious, and only the very wealthy could afford large houses with gardens. Poor families had to cram themselves into small apartments, in brick houses built several stories high, and this feature of the very first towns has not really changed at all right up to the present day. Excavations at an early burial site at Nagada in Upper Egypt show that another real gap was growing between the rich and the poor. When they died, the poor were wrapped in simple shrouds and buried in shallow trenches in the sand. For the wealthy and powerful, and especially for kings and their close relations, tombs were becoming increasingly rich and elaborate, filled with precious objects, and with the walls decorated with paintings and carvings. Pictures on objects recovered from archaeological digs at these sites show images of power and warfare. The towns are shown to have defensive strong walls, and the kings are depicted striking their enemies. The town of Nubd was ideally placed for trade. It lay on the east bank of the Nile, and was also near to the Wadi Hananat, one of the few routes across the eastern desert to the Red Sea. The wadi, or valley, in the desert was also the site of the earliest known gold mines in Egypt. Then, as now, gold was highly valued and synonymous with great wealth. The name Nubt itself is the ancient Egyptian word for gold, which suggests either that gold was the main trading commodity in the town, or that general trade was very prosperous indeed. The main worship in Nubt was the cult of the god Set. Meanwhile, further south, another major town was growing on the west bank of the Nile, Nehen. The principal god there was Horus. One of the most magnificent discoveries made in Nehen is an exquisite falcon's head, 35 centimetres tall, made of gold, with eyes of obsidian, a rare black stone which looks like polished glass. This was the sign of Horus, who in Egyptian art was usually depicted as a man with a falcon's head. Eventually, these two growing powers clashed, and in the war that followed, Nehen conquered Nubd. Many scholars believe that the story of the contest between Horus and Set in the myth of Osiris was actually a folk memory of this real conflict that raged between the two towns. The victory of Horus over Set was the victory of Nehen over Nubd, and it gave the ruler of Nehen complete supremacy in Upper Egypt. So potent was this new kingdom that its power and influence began to extend further north into Lower Egypt, until it too was rapidly swallowed up. In a short time, Egypt had become one mighty kingdom. A new city named Memphis was built on the border between the two world kingdoms. It was a symbol of the new unity, and it was to serve as the capital of the pharaohs for hundreds of years to come. The oldest surviving historical record from this time is a slate with carvings on both sides that was discovered in excavations at Nehen. On one side of the slate, the king, wearing a white crown, is shown with a club in his hand, preparing to strike a conquered enemy who kneels at his feet. Above his head is a falcon, 
the sign of the god Horus, who holds another captive by a rope. On the other side, this time with a red crown on his head, the king marches in a procession. Behind him is his servant carrying his sandals and the royal seal. Before him lie the fallen bodies of his foes. The image of a small servant bearing the king's shoes and seal was to become a popular emblem of the pharaohs thereafter. The king of Upper Egypt wore a white crown, the hedget. Its symbol was a lotus flower. The king of Lower Egypt wore a red crown, the deshret, whose symbol was the papyrus. So the king on the slate who wears both crowns is the king of all Egypt, the pharaoh. His name, which is inscribed on the slate, is Nama. In the future, the pharaoh would be depicted wearing a new crown that combined the two designs into one, the pshent. It is thought that Nana must have conquered Lower Egypt in battle, and that the carvings on the slate celebrated his victory. Later, his son, whose name was Hor Aha, consolidated his father's success by building the new capital city at Memphis. The Greek historian Herodotus wrote that since there was nowhere suitable for the new city on the border of the two kingdoms, the pharaoh diverted the waters of the Nile and built a series of dams to reclaim the land upon which the city was built. A very strict watch had to be kept on these dams, for if they broke, Memphis would be engulfed in a flood. It may be a coincidence, but this seems to bear a very close resemblance to an ancient story suggesting that the god Ra Atum had to constantly protect his people from the dangers of a flood. When Herodotus visited Memphis 2,500 years after the city had been built, he observed that the dams were still being carefully maintained. Originally, Memphis was called Eneb Hedge, or City of the White Walls, as the walls made of white limestone could be seen for miles around. It was dedicated to the god Ptah, and his temple, the principal building in the city, was named in ancient Egyptian Ai Gupta, the place of Ptah's spirit. This is believed to be the origin of the name Egypt. Later the city was called Anktawi, which means that which binds the two kingdoms together, and eventually it was renamed Menefa, which means simply the good place. Menefa was pronounced Memphis in Greek, and that is how the name has come down to us. The pharaohs lived in a magnificent royal palace in the city, but although Memphis was the symbol of the unity of the two kingdoms of Egypt, there was no denying that the southerners of Upper Egypt were the conquerors. In the earliest dynasties of Memphis, when a pharaoh died, his mummified body was placed in a coffin and then carried by ship down the Nile, far to the south. He would be buried in a tomb at the ancient burial site of the kings of Upper Egypt at Abydos. Around the tombs of the kings in Abydos are many smaller tombs, those of their wives and servants. The remains of at least a dozen buried ships have also been discovered, presumably those ships that had carried the pharaohs on their last journeys. There is no doubt that in these early days many of the servants found in the small tombs were sacrificed and buried at the same time as the pharaoh's body was placed in his tomb so that they could continue to serve him after death. Many animals were also slaughtered and buried at Abydos. In his eternal life, the pharaoh's spirit, or Ka, would wake in heaven to find himself surrounded by his own familiar pets and slaves. 
High priests and the pharaoh's chief advisers were buried on the desert plateau of Saqqara, which lay just to the south of Memphis. Eventually, the pharaohs abandoned their tradition of being taken to Abydos, and they chose to have their own tombs built closer to Memphis. It could be argued that it was this decision that really proved that Egypt was one unified kingdom at last. Close by the tomb of Horaha is a smaller tomb inscribed with the name Berner Ib, believed to be his wife. The name translates simply as sweetheart. The reign of Horaha and the era after his death is known as the early dynastic period. This period is made up of two dynasties or families of twelve pharaohs altogether who ruled the united Egypt one after another for the next three hundred years. The south, upper Egypt, had conquered the north, lower Egypt. But despite this and the fact that the new capital of Memphis was a symbol of their unity, this did not become an easy relationship straight away. The kings of this era were still strongly associated with Upper Egypt in the south of the country. Their families came from an area called Tinis that lay around the sacred site of Abydos, so they are also called the Tinite kings. They were all buried in the southern town of Abydos when they died. The names of these early kings were inscribed in upright rectangular boxes called serechs, with a picture of the falcon god Horus, the god most worshipped in southern Upper Egypt, on the top the king's name under that, and then a picture of a palace at the bottom. So, although the pharaohs ruled from Memphis, they had kept their ties with Upper Egypt in the south. Sometimes this led to strong resentment, and it wasn't always easy to maintain their authority over the northern cities in Lower Egypt. From time to time, serious rebellions broke out. In the rule of the pharaoh Nineta in the Second Dynasty, there are records of the complete destruction of a rebel city in northern Lower Egypt called Shemre. One inscription reads that the city was hacked to pieces, and that this signaled the defeat of the House of the North. So concerned was Nineta about the dangers posed by this rebellion that he actually changed his name, replacing the Horus Falcon, which should have been inscribed above his serech, with a picture of Set. Presumably this was to pacify the northerners, who were far more devoted to Set than to Horus. The next pharaoh, Chasechemwi, had to defeat a revolt that saw a northern army pushed down as far south as Nechen. Under a statue of Chasechemwi is an inscription that celebrates his victory over these rebels, recording that nearly 50,000 of them had been killed in the battle. Kasachemwe finally resolved the conflict by marrying a northern princess named Nematap. Above his serech he put the signs of both Horus and Seth, suggesting that peace had been restored at last. The joining of the Tinite royal house with the northern family signalled a new beginning for Egypt. Nematap was called the kin-bearing mother in her royal seal. This new union formed by marriage rather than conquest gave the northerners a far more agreeable status, no longer a conquered race, but now allies and equals. In future, a king would be the child of both north and south, pharaoh indeed. This new age is slightly confusingly called the Old Kingdom, and it is this era that saw the creation of the most famous and long-lasting symbol of the power of ancient Egypt, the pyramids. 
For the pharaohs of the old kingdom, Memphis was no longer just a symbol of the unity of north and south. Now it was their home, and they would continue to see it as their home even after they were dead and buried in their tombs. The Egyptians thought of the tomb as a place where the soul, or ka, would live on after death. As in the myth of Osiris, the body of the dead king would be preserved as a mummy and then placed in a coffin. This was shaped like a man, richly decorated with gold and precious stones, and usually with a portrait of the dead man's face painted at the head. By the time Herodotus visited Egypt, not only pharaohs but many of the more wealthy people were having their bodies mummified as well. Herodotus actually watched the process of mummification and described it in his book. Modern scientific analysis of mummies has confirmed that he was completely accurate in his account. First, they take a crooked piece of iron and use it to draw out the brain through the nostrils. Rinsing with drugs clears out anything remaining in the skull. Next, they cut along the flank with a sharp blade and take out the whole contents of the abdomen, which they cleanse. After this, they fill the cavity with the purest crushed myrrh, with cassia, and with every other sort of spice. Then they sew up the opening. Then the body is placed in natron sort for seventy days, entirely covered over. After that time has passed, the body is washed and wrapped around from head to foot with fine linen bandages coated with resin. Then the body is placed in a wooden coffin in the shape of a man. The coffin was then placed inside a carved stone box known as a sarcophagus. It was common to bury with a mummy a book of magic spells and prayers to help the carve the dead person overcome any dangers they might face after their death. These were copied by scribes from an ancient book known as the Book of the Dead. They were scrolls of papyrus, sometimes wrapped inside the bandages of the mummy, sometimes concealed in a wooden statue which looked just like the mummy and was placed beside it. When the soul left the body in the tomb, it had to pass by many demons before it could reach the Hall of Judgment where Osiris sat. The spells would help the car to make this journey safely. Then the soul was weighed in a scale by the jackal-headed god Anubis. If it was found to have led a wicked life, it was fed to a monstrous crocodile named Amenti, and it died again, this time for good. If the soul was judged to have lived a good life, and if it recited all the prayers in the Book of the Dead properly to the gods, then it was allowed to live forever. All the actions that a person performed in life, sleeping, eating, dressing, reading, and playing games, were performed in the tomb by the car. All the objects and supplies that a person would need in the next life were stored in the tomb, and around a pharaoh's tomb there would also be a whole complex of buildings and temples to house the priests who would continue to serve him after his death. For example, at the entrance to a temple attached to a tomb in Sakara, there is a life-size statue of the pharaoh walled into a brick chamber. There are two holes drilled in the wall opposite the statue's eyes. The priests who tended his tomb would leave daily offerings of food outside this chamber, where the king's eyes could see them through the holes and enjoy the essence or spirit of the food. Later the priests would eat the offering themselves for their dinner in a more down-to-earth manner. Traditionally, kings, their relatives and close followers had been buried in long rectangular tombs of mud brick called mastabas. The term mastaba comes from a word meaning bench, 
because these tombs resembled the sloping mud-brick benches that were commonly found in front of Egyptian houses. The Mustava tombs sloped into the hillsides on which they were built. Some of the Mustavas in Avidos, dating from the early dynastic period, cover very large areas indeed and contain many buildings. It took a huge number of men years to build a pharaoh's tomb, so the work would have to be started early in a pharaoh's reign to make sure it would be ready for him when he died. Since it was such an important task, the work was overseen by the king's chief advisor, the vizier. The second pharaoh of the old kingdom was called Djoser. He chose a site for his tomb at Saqqara, near Memphis. He began to build the tomb as a traditional mastaba. However, he was served by a particularly brilliant vizier, whose name was Imhotep. Among his many accomplishments, Imhotep was a master stonemason. Hitherto, tombs, no matter their size, had always been built of sun-dried mud bricks. Stone was used for statues and obelisks, for ornamental vases, and sometimes, in very large buildings, for the lintels which supported arches or doorways. Imhotep decided to build Djoser a more magnificent memorial than ever before. He would build the whole tomb out of stone. The burial chamber was to lie at the bottom of a vertical shaft, hewn out of the rock base, on which the tomb would stand. Then he built stone walls nearly eight meters high, all around it, in the traditional rectangular shape of the mastaba. At this point, the tomb should have been finished, but now Imhotep had a completely original idea. He decided to build a slightly lower stone rectangle outside the first one, to make, as it were, a step up to it. Liking his design, he went on to build yet another stone rectangle, this time a smaller one on top of the first one, and then another, and another, each one slightly smaller than the last. In all, he built seven layers of stone, so that eventually from each side the tomb rose like a giant staircase climbing into the sky. This is known today as the Step Pyramid, and it was the first pyramid ever built. While these layers were being built up, far below other workers were digging tunnels and shafts into a maze of corridors around the burial chamber. Some of these shafts led to other smaller burial chambers for the pharaoh's family. In one of them, a small sarcophagus was later found to contain the body of a young prince. When the steppe pyramid was excavated in the 1930s, archaeologists discovered more than 40,000 polished stone vases in another of these shafts. The vases were of the most exquisite workmanship, some carved to resemble woven baskets, some like boxes of gold. Many had the names of Joseph's ancestors from the first and second dynasties inscribed on them. The vases themselves were empty, but it may be that they were designed to hold the spirits of all the past pharaohs, and so bring them together in this marvellous new tomb that was designed to last forever. By now, slaves were no longer being sacrificed and buried with their master. Instead, small painted clay or wooden models of pharaoh's servants, named Ushabtis, were placed in the tomb to represent real servants. They were believed to come to life and serve the Ka of the dead king. For the next thousand years, all pharaohs were buried in pyramids, and each one, if he could afford it, sought to outdo the last in size and grandeur. In time, the shape of the base changed from a rectangle to a square, 
and this shape, a square with its sides narrowing to a single point, became the classic pyramid form. Actually, when you think about it, it's an extremely practical way to build a tall monument. As it rises higher, it gets smaller, so you have to lift less and less stone as you get near to the top. Building a pyramid is still an astonishing achievement. All this had to be done by hand. Quarrying the stone and transporting it was in itself an incredibly difficult task. This was before iron tools. Bronze tools could be used for cutting precious gemstones, but they were useless for cutting into solid rock. Instead, the workers used hammers made of a hard rock called basalt to cut the softer limestone and then shape it into blocks. Nearly all the limestone quarries were located in the east, between the Nile and the Red Sea, so the stone blocks then had to be dragged to the Nile so that they could be shipped to the site of the tomb. Most of the pyramids are situated near the high water mark that would be reached by the yearly flooding of the Nile. The flood waters would usually rise to a depth of more than a meter, so at this time of the year the heavy stone blocks could be floated on rafts to near the building sites. The only alternative was to drag the blocks on wooden sleds. Men would scatter water in front of the sleds to make the ground slippery, but it must have been incredibly hard work. In 1992, a cemetery was discovered close to the Great Pyramids at Giza, which contained the simple graves of workers who had died during their construction. Most of the skeletons show serious spinal injuries from the excessive strain of hauling and carrying heavy loads. In the past, many people assumed that the workers must have been slaves. Indeed, Herodotus reports he was told that it took 100,000 slaves 30 years to build the Great Pyramid at Giza. In fact, although some slaves were certainly used in these projects, the records show that the workforce was nearly all made up of the common Egyptian people, who normally worked on the land. To keep the project running smoothly, teams of around 20,000 men were changed every four months. During the period when the Nile flooded, thousands more could be drafted in to help, as they could do no farm work until the waters subsided. They worked for nine days at a stretch, and the tenth day was a day of rest. Running, feeding and supplying this workforce involved a huge number of scribes who kept a record of the workers and carefully noted deliveries of water, food, clothing, tools and stone on their papyrus scrolls. Imhotep, who had designed and built the first pyramid, was eventually worshipped as a god. It was believed that as well as being a master builder, he had invented hieroglyphic writing, the Egyptian alphabet of pictures and symbols so he was the very first scribe. It was the written word that helped to overcome this problem. Hieroglyphs were used to express the language of the central government at Memphis, the language of the pharaoh. All educated people had to be able to read that tongue, and over time this was a great factor in drawing the country together. Hieroglyphics was a form of writing unique to the ancient Egyptians, it was made up of a mixture of pictures and symbols, which, in different orders and places on the page, could mean both letters and words or parts of words. For example, if you wanted to use hieroglyphics to write in English today, a picture of an eye might mean an eye, or it could mean I, as in, I am reading this to you now. If you drew an eye, and next to it you drew a wavy line to represent the word C, then you would be writing the word Icy. To make sure that the reader understood, you might draw an icicle next to it. 
Of course, the same sounds could also mean I see, as in I can see you. So to distinguish this meaning, you might draw a picture of a man looking next to your symbols. To show the past and the future, the Egyptians used pictures of legs walking forwards or backwards. If you add the legs walking forwards to the eye, wavy line, and the man looking, you have written, I will see. Turn the legs around, and it reads, I saw. Hieroglyphics could be written from left to right, or from right to left, or up, or down. Today, all this may seem terribly confusing to us, but to people who used it all the time, it wasn't very difficult to understand, although it must have been quite tricky and time-consuming to write. Eventually, Egyptian scribes working with paintbrushes and papyrus scrolls to record ordinary everyday business began to find hieroglyphics a bit long-winded. So, by simplifying the pictures, they invented a sort of shorthand version of hieroglyphics, made up more or less entirely of symbols, like our alphabet. This new handwriting became known as demotic. This term comes from the Greek and means the writing of the people. Temple priests also invented their own shorthand to write about religious matters, and this version became known as hieratic, or the writing of the priests. So as time passed, hieroglyphics themselves became special. This ancient form of writing was used increasingly only for very important texts, for proclamations by pharaohs, for official histories, or for prayers or magic spells carved or painted on the walls of tombs. The word hieroglyphic comes from the Greek and means sacred letters. Although it's not strictly accurate because one can write anything with this system, it's not a bad description, because as time went on, it was to become more and more associated with the Egyptian religion. The hieroglyphs pertained the laws and the beliefs of the land, so the scribes who could write and understand them came to represent these virtues themselves. A whole new class grew up in Egyptian society the scribes. They were both the servants and the representatives of the state, and because of their skills, scribes began to be put in charge of other workers. Schools for scribes were held in temple courtyards, and although the position of scribe was often inherited and passed from generation to generation, this was also a means whereby a common man could rise from the bottom of Egyptian society to the top. Inscribed on the wall of his tomb in Abydos is the life history of the scribe Weni, celebrating his achievements. Weni came from a very humble family and rose to be a scribe, then a judge, then governor of Upper Egypt under Pharaoh Merenri. As a general of the Pharaoh's army, he drove tribes of Bedouin raiders out of the Sinai Desert. A famous book which all young scribes had to copy in class contained the lines a single day of study is profitable to you, and the work one does at school is as eternal as the mountains. There is no trade without a master, except for that of the scribe, who is the master of his pen. The hieroglyph for the word scribe is a picture of the scribe's wooden ink palette. Since he wrote in hieroglyphic picture symbols, a large part of his training had to be in drawing and painting, so he was not only a clerk, but also an artist. The palette contained two inkwells, one for red and the other for black. The black ink was for ordinary use. The red was to indicate titles, chapter headings, or for special emphasis. 
Oddly enough, although the ability to read in hieroglyphics was to be lost, this use of different coloured inks carried on, and eventually found its way into our own handwriting and publishing traditions. Even today, in many printed diaries, feast days and public holidays are still marked in red, just as they were by Egyptian scribes 5,000 years ago. The rule of the Old Kingdom lasted nearly 500 years. It saw the building of many pyramids, the greatest of all being that of the pharaoh Khufu at Giza, which was to become known as one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. Incidentally, it is the only one of those still standing. Six dynasties made up of twenty-four pharaohs came and went, and for all this time Memphis was the capital city of Egypt. However, since Egypt was a long, narrow kingdom with Memphis in the north, the capital was a long way from most of the country. So it was more practical to govern the land by splitting it into different regions running from north to south along the Nile, each one with its own governor. These regions were called gnomes, and their governors were nomarchs. So long as Memphis remained powerful and the pharaoh was strong, this worked very well. The pharaoh could reward his most trusted and loyal followers by making them nomarchs of the various provinces, as happened to Weni the scribe, and thus the kingdom would remain whole and strong. However, over the centuries, some of these nomarchs became hereditary. The title of governor passed from father to son, and as the power of these families grew, their gnomes became almost like separate kingdoms. Pharaohs had to be increasingly careful not to upset them, in case it might lead to open disagreements and even rebellions. Slowly, Egypt was slipping back to the insecure days of conflict and division before the rule of the pharaohs. By the end of the fifth dynasty, the power of the pharaoh was becoming dangerously weak. Outside the pyramid of the last of these kings, whose name was Gunas, is a temple. Along one long corridor, the walls are covered with delicate carvings recording scenes from the pharaoh's life. These pictures are strikingly realistic. One shows the quarrying and shipping of granite columns for the temple. One is a hunting scene with pictures of jackals, leopards, giraffes, and even a hedgehog. The most remarkable scene, though, is a picture of the starving victims of a famine, their bodies reduced almost to skeletons. It is not known exactly why, but there seems to have been widespread starvation throughout Egypt at this time. Perhaps the Nile failed to flood sufficiently for a number of years to produce enough crops to feed the people. At any rate, this disaster, combined with the faltering powers of the pharaohs in Memphis, meant that the kingdom began to splinter into different provinces, with each one unwilling to pay taxes to the central government and wanting to keep what food they had for themselves. Although the pharaohs continued to rule in name, in practice the Egyptian state fell apart. This era, lasting around 150 years, is called the First Intermediate Period. Towards the end of this time, the nomarchs of the southern city of Thebes grew more and more powerful, until one of them, whose name was Menchuhotep, succeeded in overcoming all the other gnomes and uniting Egypt once more. His reign signalled a new period of stability, which is known as the Middle Kingdom. The most successful pharaoh of this period was Senuzret III, 
who ruled from 1878 BCE for around 40 years. He was a famous warrior. According to Manetho, he was a huge man who stood nearly two meters tall. More like African tribes to the south in the kingdoms of Kush and Nubia had been taking advantage of the weakened state of Egypt to raid further and further up the Nile. Now Senuzret led his armies south to drive them back. After subduing the tribes, he raised a great stone tablet by the Nile at Semna, inscribed with the words, I carried off their people into slavery, went forth to their wells, smote their cattle, I reaped their grain and set fire to it. This now will be the border, and who shall maintain it will be my son. He who will lose it or not fight for it is none of mine. Thereafter, Senuzret was worshipped as a god in Nubia, a god of warfare, punishment, and destruction. Senuzret also led his soldiers north across the Sinai Desert and into Syria, where he defeated their armies and sacked their cities. The plunder that he brought back refilled the treasuries of Egypt. He ordered a general restoration of the temples and statues throughout the kingdom, especially in his own magnificent southern city of Thebes. In Upper Egypt, he rebuilt the great temple of Ra'atum at Heliopolis, erecting two granite obelisks there, each one twenty meters high and weighing a hundred and twenty tons. One of them remains to this day, the oldest standing obelisk in Egypt, although the temple itself has long since crumbled away. The Middle Kingdom lasted for the next two hundred and fifty years, and fourteen pharaohs succeeded one another until the reign of Amenemhat III. These pharaohs built their pyramids south of Memphis, at a place called Dashur. By now they had abandoned the practice of building the whole structure of stone, which had been incredibly expensive, both in materials and labor. They had returned to the tradition of building with mud bricks. However, they stayed faithful to the pyramid shape, and they still clad their pyramids in white limestone, so they looked just the same from the outside. Today, most of the Middle Kingdom pyramids have turned into heaps of rubble, because years later the white limestone was stripped off them to build new houses in Cairo. The unprotected mud-brick structures disintegrated and collapsed. Amenemhet's pyramid is particularly fascinating because it is one of the last ones ever built. The problem with the whole idea of the pyramids was that because of their very size, right from the start, they attracted the attention of thieves. Everyone knew that pharaohs were buried with their treasures. Even the coffins in which their mummies lay were encrusted with gold and precious stones. By the time of the Middle Kingdom, most of the early Mastaba tombs at Abydos had been broken into and plundered long ago. In an attempt to foil the robbers, the internal designs of the pyramids had become increasingly complicated. Amenemhet's pyramid contains a maze of shafts and passages, dead-end corridors, hidden trapdoors, and sliding panels. The burial chamber itself was a vast block of stone, hollowed out and sunk into the ground. The pyramid was then built over it like a huge brick puzzle. When the pharaoh was buried, the burial chamber was sealed with a single slab of rock, weighing forty-five tons. Then the passage to the chamber was bricked in, so that it ended as part of a corridor wall, painted over to remove all traces of its location. Despite all these precautions, when the pyramid was excavated, 
It was found that robbers had managed to dig into the tomb, steal the treasures, pillage the bodies, and even burn the coffins. At the end of Amenemhet's reign, the Middle Kingdom was finished, and Egypt once more fell prey to conflict and division. This time, the reasons were more complicated, and for the Egyptians, more ruinous than ever. During the centuries of the Middle Kingdom, the nomarchs in the north had allowed many foreigners to settle in the area of the Nile Delta. These people seemed to have been mostly from Palestine and Syria. The Egyptians called them Hyksos, which can be translated as shepherds. At first they tolerated the foreigners because they were useful as servants and workers. However, over time, as their numbers increased and many of them became prosperous, the Hyksos were no longer prepared to accept the Egyptians as their masters. The Egyptians, angered by this lack of respect and worried about their growing numbers, tried to suppress the Hyksos and drive them out, but it was too late. Not only did the Hyksos defeat the Egyptians in battle and overthrow the nomarchs in the north, they also invited more of their people to invade from Palestine. Then they set up their own state in Lower Egypt, with a capital city called Avaris. The Hyksos had a great advantage over the Egyptians. The invaders who they called in to help them had developed iron swords, while the Egyptians were still using softer bronze. They had also invented a terrifying new weapon, the war chariot. In 1720 BCE, the Hyksos attacked and sacked Memphis itself. The pharaohs withdrew south to the city of Thebes. For the next two hundred years, Egypt was, in effect, two kingdoms, the Hyksos in the north and the Egyptians in the south. But the pharaohs never admitted this and continued to call themselves kings of the whole country. Much to their fury, the Hyksos rulers adopted many of their ways and called themselves pharaohs too, with temples, scribes, and all the style and trappings of the Egyptian court. Far to the south, the princes of Kush in Nubia realized that Egypt was growing weak. They began to raid, slowly taking back bits of land whenever they could. Eventually, they had conquered as far as the island of Elephantine, 320 kilometers north of Semna, where Senuzrud had raised his stone tablet proclaiming the border, and only about 160 kilometers south of Thebes. The pharaohs were on the brink of ruin. There is not much written material from the time of the Hyksos, because the Egyptians hated the idea of foreigners ruling in their land, so most of the evidence was later destroyed. However, although they detested the Hyksos, the Egyptians were not slow to learn from them. Soon they too were armed with iron weapons and their own war chariots. Finally, under the pharaoh Ahmos I, they secured their southern border with a series of fierce raids, driving the Nubians back. Then they attacked the Hyksos. In a campaign that lasted ten years, they pushed remorselessly northwards. They drove the foreigners out of Memphis, and then Avaris was razed to the ground. The Hyksos were chased out of Egypt, and the last of their people fled to Palestine, to the city of Sharahem. Not content with this, the Egyptian army pursued them there and lay siege to the city, destroying it without mercy. Then they returned to deal with the southern threat more thoroughly, driving the Nubians back into their own kingdom of Cush and taking great numbers of slaves. 
Ahmos was triumphant. From Senna in the south to the Nile Delta and the Mediterranean Sea, the land of Egypt was united once more under the undisputed rule of the pharaoh. This was to be a magnificent new period of power and prosperity. This era is known as the New Kingdom, and it lasted for the next five hundred years. Abandoning the pyramids did not mean that the pharaohs stopped building. Instead, they redirected their massive workforces to build temples, palaces and fortresses on a truly colossal scale. This was, however, a big change in the way both the pharaohs and their people thought about what they were doing. Although these buildings were decorated with huge statues of kings and boldly inscribed with their names so that no one could be in any doubt who had built them, these structures were made to celebrate the gods and their people, rather than being simply monuments to the pharaoh's own immortality. To pay for these huge works, not only did the pharaohs use their own resources, but also those of other states. This was an age of great military expeditions against their neighbours, Successive pharaohs invaded and conquered further and further south into Africa, seizing the gold mines of Nubia and Kush. There was also a huge expansion in foreign trade. The sixth pharaoh of the New Kingdom was unique in that she was a woman. Queen Hatshepsut was not the first woman to govern Egypt. There had been a number of royal wives who had ruled as regents while their sons were growing up. But she was the first woman to rule outright as a pharaoh. Quite how she managed to seize power is not clear, but she ruled for fifteen years. Pictures and statues of her actually portray her as a king with an ornamental beard. She was not famed for her military exploits, but on the walls of a temple to the god Amun, which she built in Thebes, are pictures of a Greek trading expedition she sent to the land of Punt, far into Africa. There the Egyptians exchanged their goods for incense and spices, fine timber, and precious stones. Many Egyptians thought it disgraceful that a woman should actually have ruled as a pharaoh. Hatshepsut died in 1483 BCE and was succeeded by her stepson, Tutmos III. When he came to the throne, he had many of her statues and pictures destroyed, and he wiped her name from the lists of kings. In the great temple of Amun at Karnak, Tutmos walled up the obelisks that Hatshepsut had put out there. Presumably they were too big to destroy. However, this attempt to wipe out her memory was a spectacular failure. Hidden away for centuries, they were at last rediscovered by archaeologists, and the inscriptions naming her as Pharaoh were in perfect condition, almost as if they had just been made. Tutmos had more success as a soldier. He took the great city-states of Megiddo and Joppa. He overran Palestine, Jordan and the Lebanon, and his armies conquered as far as the city of Kadesh in the north of Syria. Egypt had become an empire, and taxes, tributes and gifts poured into Thebes. To celebrate his success, Tutmos built huge temples at Semna and Amada, and he added new buildings and statues to the already massive temple complex at Karnak. Pharaoh followed Pharaoh, and the wealth of Africa and all the kingdoms of the Middle East continued to flow into Egypt. However, during this time, another empire was growing far to the east, in the plains of Central Asia, the Hittites. 
The Egyptians and the Hittites continued to struggle over the possession of Syria which lay between them, and in particular for the rich lands around the city of Kadesh. In 1291 BCE, Pharaoh Seti I came to the throne. He crossed the western desert and conquered Libya, and throughout his reign he continued to campaign in the east, in Syria. At Karnak he built an incredible hall of pillars, 134 stone columns, 23 meters high. At Abydos he built a new temple to show his devotion to the ancient kings and the cult of Osiris. Unfortunately, work on this temple had to be suspended, as Seti needed money to pursue his war against the Hittites. On one of the walls of the temple is a picture of Seti with his young son, Ramesses, standing by a list of all the kings of Egypt from the earliest times to his own reign. Ramesses II succeeded his father Seti in 1279 BCE. He was to be the most famous and magnificent pharaoh of all, and he is known to history as Ramesses the Great. In 1275 BCE he led an army into Syria and fought a great battle at Kadesh. This ended with neither side truly victorious, but both claiming victory. Perhaps Ramesses did have the better claim, because later the Hittites sued for peace, and Ramesses finished the war by agreeing to marry the daughter of the Hittite king. Paintings depicting the bravery of Ramesses in the battle and a long description of the fight were inscribed on the walls at Karnak, at Abydos, and Luxor, and at his own monumental temple, the Ramesseum at Thebes. Some experts argue that Ramesses only became known as the Great because he never let anyone forget it. While he was not the first Egyptian king to proclaim his glory to the world, it's true that Ramesses took this further than ever before. By the end of his reign there were statues of the king everywhere. However, no one could argue with his achievements as a builder. He finished all the work begun by his father. He built another, even greater temple of his own at Abydos, and a magnificent new city in the delta named Pi Ramesses, which covered thirty square kilometers. It contained obelisks and temples, and a massive new royal palace, which incidentally had the largest stable ever built. At the other end of the country, in Nubia, he built the extraordinary temple at Abu Simbel, carved into a gigantic cliff face and fronted by no less than four colossal statues of himself. In all, Ramesses ruled for sixty-seven years. He had dozens of wives, most of them the daughters of kings who made treaties with Egypt. He fathered more than a hundred sons and daughters. His name itself became linked with kingship, and nine more pharaohs would bear the name of Ramesses. Ramesses XI, who ruled from 1098 to 1070 BCE, was the last ruler of the New Kingdom. His death brought to an end the 20th dynasty of pharaohs in Egypt. The rule of Ramesses the Great had marked the high point of Egyptian rule. Since that time the power and influence of Egypt had weakened. It was the age-old problem. The divisions between north and south had grown again until they burst out into open hostility. Since the pharaoh was the symbol of the unity of the kingdom, the less unity there was, the weaker became his position. By the reign of Ramesses XI's father, civil war had broken out. There had also been a series of famines, 
The vassal states around Egypt had seen the growing weakness of the pharaoh and stopped sending tribute. Without money to pay their soldiers, the Egyptians were too busy squabbling amongst themselves to protect their gold mines in Nubia or their turquoise mines in Sinai. The local kings took them back. By the time Ramesses XI came to the throne, the Egyptian state was practically bankrupt. Syria, Palestine and the Lebanon no longer even pretended to be loyal. When Ramesses XI sent his envoy to the Lebanon to collect cedar wood, he was dismissed empty-handed because he did not have enough money to pay for it. Only a short time before, the timber would have been given as a tribute to the might of the pharaoh. Egypt fell into a long period of decline, and for the next four hundred years the Egyptians abandoned any ambitions to conquer or control their neighbours. Pharaoh continued to succeed Pharaoh with all the trappings of kingship that they could still afford, but they were obsessed with their own internal wrangles. Conspiracy followed intrigue followed plot, and so it went on. By the twenty-fourth dynasty, at one point there were four different kings claiming to be Pharaoh at the same time. For a short period after this, Nubian kings managed to seize control of Upper Egypt in the south. They did not, however, see themselves as invaders. Nubia and Kush had been subject to the kings of Egypt for so long that they now thought of themselves as Egyptians, and they wanted to restore the ancient virtues of the pharaoh's rule. Their king, Pianti, renamed himself Ramesses, and when he died he was buried in the Egyptian fashion, mummified and placed in a tomb. However, it was from the north, in Lower Egypt, that eventually a power grew to unite the ancient kingdom of Egypt for one last time. In Sais, in the Delta, a new dynasty of kings, the 26th, managed to end the seemingly endless power struggle. The accession of the Sayite pharaoh Psamtik I finally saw a return to stability. Because of its close proximity to the Mediterranean Sea, goods and people flooded into the Sayite kingdom from the Greek city-states and islands that controlled the trade there. Although the Sayite kings were genuinely serious about restoring Egypt's great past, Greek art, literature and culture became increasingly influential in their court. Also, the Greeks had been at war for so long with each other and with their ambitious neighbours, the Persians, that many of them had become professional soldiers. Greek soldiers were happy to serve as mercenaries in the Egyptian army, and the Sayite kings increasingly came to rely on them. Using this new power, the Egyptians reconquered Palestine. They also recruited a Greek navy to protect their northern border and the growing trade in the Mediterranean. However, in 525 BCE, the rule of these last pharaohs came to an abrupt end. Cambyses, king of the Persians, led his armies into Egypt. The eastern desert had always provided a natural barrier that had protected Egypt from invasion. Now, guided by Bedouin tribesmen who knew where water was to be found, and by a Greek traitor from the Egyptian army, the Persians crossed the desert sands. They met the Egyptian forces led by Pharaoh Tantic III at Pelusium, the most northern stronghold of this ancient land. Cambyses had ordered his men to paint pictures of cats on their shields. One of the gods for whom the Egyptians had a special reverence was Bastet, who was shown in the form of a cat, so many Egyptians were unwilling to strike at her image. 
In the fighting that followed, the Egyptian army was completely overrun, hardly offering a blow, and the Greek mercenaries were slaughtered. The remains of the army fled south to Memphis, hotly pursued by the victorious Persians. Psantic III was taken prisoner. He was sent to the Persian capital of Susa as a captive in chains. The mummified body of his dead father, Pharaoh Ahmos II, was dragged from his tomb and thrown on a bonfire. Cambyses celebrated his victory by riding into Memphis with a cage full of cats mounted on the front of his chariot. The ancient and mighty kingdom of Egypt was no more. It had become just one more province in the growing empire of the Persians. The battle at Pelusium brought to an end the continuous rule of the pharaohs in the land of Egypt, which had lasted for over 2,500 years. It is worth taking the moment to consider just how long that really was. To put it another way, 2,500 years is about the same amount of time that has passed since the battle at Pelusium and today. By comparison, the Persian Empire was to last less than 200 years until it fell to the Macedonian king Alexander the Great, who took possession of Egypt in 332 BCE. There was one short period during the Persian rule when the Egyptians managed to take back some of their land, reinstall their own rulers, and re-establish their own way of life. A young prince named Tuknos, one of the sons of Pharaoh Amenhotep II, had been out hunting, and as the day was hot he lay down to rest in the shadow of the Sphinx. Presently he fell asleep. Tutmos dreamed that the god Horus appeared to him and complained that the Sphinx had not been looked after. If Tutmos would restore it to its former dory, the god promised that Tutmos would become king. The prince took the god's promise seriously. He cleared away the sand that had piled up onto the sides of the statue. He repaired a broken paw and filled in a hole in the lion's chest. Then he painted the Sphinx with bright colours. When the IV did indeed become Pharaoh, he had the story of his dream carved onto a stone tablet and placed between the paws of the Sphinx, where it can still be seen today. This act of restoration might well be described as the first archaeological excavation. Unfortunately, not all the diggers and excavators of the ancient sites in Egypt have had such noble motives. Thieves have always been attracted to the treasures that lay inside the ancient tombs. The pyramids which proclaimed the glory of the dead pharaohs also served to advertise exactly where they were buried. Over the ages, robbers broke in and plundered them, and not even the most ingenious traps, false tunnels, magic spells or curses ever managed to keep them out. Kings themselves have not always been guiltless of plundering. In the 8th century CE, the Caliph El-Manun, who was then the Arabic ruler of Egypt, used a giant battering ram to break into the Great Pyramid of Khufu, convinced that it was still stuffed with treasure. Today, tourists who visit the site use the gaping hole he made as a doorway. Later, the pharaohs chose to be buried in less obvious locations, conceding their tombs in the Valley of the Kings, but even here they were not safe. Nearly every one of these tombs was broken into and pillaged. Over the centuries, every time a new nation came to rule Egypt, it became intrigued by it and tried to understand the glories that they found there, as well as profit from them. 
This should have been relatively easy, because the Egyptians left thousands of written records on scrolls of papyrus, paper made from papyrus reeds, painted on the walls of temples and tombs, or chiselled in stone. Their writing, called hieroglyphics, was made up of pictures and symbols. The problem was that the art of reading the hieroglyphics was lost. For hundreds of years no one knew for certain who these people really were, what they thought or believed in, or how they lived. All that we knew or imagined we knew about the Egyptians was what other people had thought and written about them, and that was usually long after the events they described. For example, around 450 BCE the country was visited by the Greek traveller and scholar Herodotus, who described what he saw. He also tried to record the important details of their past. Ancient Egypt had by this time been under the rule of the pharaohs for around 2,500 years. Herodotus has often been called the father of history. It's also worth mentioning that some people have called him the father of lies. He insisted he never made up stories, but only recorded what people told him of their past. Of course, people were just as likely to make up stories for gullible strangers then as they are today. So, it's probably best to be a little sceptical when reading his historical accounts. But even so, his observations of the Egyptians are remarkable. The customs of these people are very singular. For example, women attend the markets and trade, while men sit at home and weave at the loom. And here, while the rest of the world weaves from side to side, the Egyptians work the thread up and down. Women carry burdens on their shoulders, while men carry them on their heads. Their lavatories are inside their houses, while they eat their meals outdoors. They knead dough for their bread with their feet, but they mix mud for bricks with their hands. Their customs are exactly the opposite of the common practice of the rest of mankind. When the Greek general Alexander the Great conquered Egypt, he built a magnificent new capital city, which he named after himself, Alexandria. After his death in 323 BCE, Egypt fell into the hands of one of his generals, Ptolemy. Ptolemy and his descendants ruled Egypt, and they called themselves pharaohs, styling themselves on the kings of the past. But they did not choose to live in the old Egyptian capital of Memphis. Their capital city was Alexandria, and the first of them actually to bother to learn to speak Egyptian was Cleopatra VII, who was the last of their line. Ptolemy built a great library at Alexandria, which became a major centre of learning in the ancient world. In order to demonstrate his respect for the traditions of his new kingdom, and in an attempt to persuade the Egyptians that, although a Greek, he was part of that tradition, Ptolemy ordered a book to be written by the scholar Manetho. Manetho's History of Egypt listed in order the names of all the past pharaohs, and included Ptolemy at the end. The Ptolemies ruled for the next three hundred years until the land was conquered again, this time by the Romans, and Egypt passed into the Roman Empire in 30 BC. But when the Roman general Julius Caesar was trying to take Alexandria, the great library was burned to the ground, and many thousands of books, including Manetho's History of Egypt, were lost. Fortunately, parts of Manetho's work, including the list of kings, were preserved in the writings of other authors who had copied them. 
Although the Romans were mostly interested in Egypt because of the vast amounts of grain produced in the Nile Valley, they were also intrigued by the stone monuments all over the country. Like so many people who came after them, the Romans were not at all averse to taking these away with them and setting them up at home. They particularly prized obelisks, and eventually thirteen of these great monuments were transported to Rome. An obelisk is a long, pointed shaft of stone, usually carved from granite and decorated with gold at the top so that the crown would sparkle in the sunlight. Obelisks were raised in pairs at the gates of temples to the sun god Ra, and usually they were covered with hieroglyphics carved into the stone surfaces. Some of them were over thirty meters tall and weighed as much as four hundred and fifty tons, so to move them to Rome was in itself an extraordinary feat of engineering. One of these obelisks ended up in a part of Rome called the Field of Mars, where it was used as a kind of huge sundial, its shadow measured at noon marking out the length of the days throughout the year. The raising of these obelisks in Rome was to pose a particular problem for people who later tried to decipher and make sense of hieroglyphic texts. The Romans themselves couldn't read hieroglyphics, but they thought them very stylish. On one of the obelisks in Rome, which had plain surfaces, the emperor ordered carvings to be made to decorate it in the Egyptian style, like the others. So his workmen simply copied hieroglyphs from other Egyptian carvings and then arranged them on the obelisk in what they thought was the most attractive order. This, of course, made no sense as writing at all, and it was to create a great deal of confusion later on when people tried to read it. And other factors forced our understanding of Egypt even further from us. Christianity became the official religion of the Roman Empire, and in 391 CE the Christian emperor Theodosius proclaimed that all pagan worship must come to an end. The Christians now looked on the old gods not only as wrong, but even as devils. Ancient temples were abandoned, and often old libraries were destroyed. Statues were smashed and temple walls defaced as some of the more fanatical Christians sought to wipe away signs of their pagan past. The last remaining priests and scribes who knew how to write using hieroglyphics died, and there was no one to replace them. Thousands of years of history simply disappeared because there was no one left who could read hieroglyphics. It was to be more than 1,400 years before anyone managed to figure out the mystery of how they worked or what they meant. In fact, because hieroglyphics had become so closely associated with the old religion, the symbols themselves, now that they were indecipherable, began to seem mystifying, even magical. But even though the past was shrouded in uncertainty, it could not be completely forgotten. The colossal monuments of ancient Egypt still stood unimaginably old and mysterious. The tombs of long-dead kings were decorated with what now seemed like magical symbols, and these symbols could also be found carved on stone pillars, preserved in old books, and painted on the walls of ancient buildings. Curiously enough, the Egyptians themselves didn't show very much interest in these relics of the past, but foreigners who visited or invaded Egypt were always struck by the sheer magnificence of its history. Arabic scholars believed that hieroglyphics must contain mystical secrets, and they even invented a word for it, al-kemi, from the Egyptian word kemet, the black land. This entered the English language as alchemy, which meant the attempt to concoct a miraculous elixir of eternal life, 
or to find a way to change ordinary metals into gold. Could it be that the ancient Egyptians knew how these things were done? Surely a way could be found to decipher these ancient texts, and if it could, what marvels might they contain? Perhaps some wisdom from the ancient world lost to our modern understanding. This belief in a lost wisdom contributed to the allure of all things Egyptian. In the Middle Ages in Europe, a bizarre belief circulated that a powder made of ground-up Egyptian mummies might be a cure for all sorts of ailments. Apparently this was because of a mistranslation in an ancient medical text which recommended mummia, a Greek word for a rare sort of Persian ointment. As mentioned earlier, that was how the word mummy evolved. But this mistranslation meant that rather than a search for a special ointment or waxy resin, literally hundreds of ancient tombs in Egypt were stripped of their mummies, which were then ground up to supply this grisly trade. This practice continued for over 200 years until the Turkish Ottoman Empire, which by then governed Egypt, finally put a stop to it. But people were still enthralled by Egypt. In the 17th and 18th centuries, there was a craze in Europe for collecting mysterious objects and displaying them in what were called cabinets of curiosity. And no self-respecting enthusiast would consider his collection complete unless it contained at least one object taken from an ancient Egyptian tomb, even if they didn't understand it. Then, at the end of the 18th century, the French general Napoleon Bonaparte led an army into Egypt. Bonaparte's plan was incredibly ambitious, and was partly aimed at undermining France's great rival, Britain. But it was not only to be a military expedition. Travelling with the army were 167 scholars, botanists, architects, geologists, engineers and artists. They were ordered to make a complete survey of the country, including a detailed description of Egypt's ancient past. The expedition started well enough. A fleet of French ships carried the army to the Bay of Aboukir. Napoleon took first Alexandria and then Cairo after defeating the Egyptian army in a battle that took place by the Great Pyramids at Giza. Although the French soldiers already knew something about the Egyptian monuments, the extraordinary scale of these ancient structures amazed them. Before the battle at Giza, Napoleon amused himself by making a mathematical calculation. He estimated that if he completely dismantled the Great Pyramids, he would have enough stone blocks to build a wall all around France, and he was probably right. When one company of French soldiers arrived at the Temple of Luxor for the first time, their officer wrote in his journal, On first sighting the ancient temple, without an order given, my soldiers formed ranks and saluted it. However, the British were not prepared to let the French take Egypt without a fight. Admiral Horatio Nelson led his fleet into the Bay of Aboukir, and in a short, violent battle, completely destroyed the French ships that lay there, effectively cutting off Napoleon's forces in Egypt. Meanwhile, Turkish troops of the Ottoman Empire combined with a British force to attack the French soldiers on land. One part of the French army was garrisoned in a medieval fortress named Rosetta, about 80 kilometers from Alexandria. Expecting an attack, they were busy reinforcing the old walls when an officer noticed a strange-looking stone among the rubble. It was a large, dark grey slab of basalt, not obviously valuable, but it was different to the other stones in the wall. He climbed down to have a look at it. 
Wiping away the dust, he saw that one side of the slab had been polished. A long text had been chiseled into the polished stone surface. This was not in itself unusual. The Egyptians were always plundering old buildings and monuments for stone. After all, why go to the bother of quarrying and shaping a new stone when so much of it was lying around from the past? However, this stone was different. What immediately caught the French soldier's eye was that the inscription on the stone was in three different styles of script. He recognized the bottom part of the inscription to be in Greek characters. The section above it he did not recognize, although it looked to him a bit like Arabic. In fact, it was demotic, the kind of simplified hieroglyphics used by the scribes for non-religious texts. But there was no mistaking the characters in the top section of the carving. They were hieroglyphics. What the soldier had discovered was a fragment of a stela, an inscribed stone, carved with the same words in three different scripts, Greek, Demotic, and Hieroglyphs. The stone dated from the time of Ptolemy, when all three scripts were still in use. Shortly after this, the French army surrendered to the British at Alexandria in 1799. The peace treaty allowed the French scholars to take away all their notes and observations, but they had to hand over to the British any large-scale archaeological discoveries. Among these treasures was the Rosetta Stone. The discovery of the Rosetta Stone created a sensation. The Greek inscription made it clear that this was a proclamation made by the pharaoh Ptolemy V, written out three times in three different scripts, so that it could be read by every one of his subjects. Since scholars could still read and understand ancient Greek, it might be possible to decipher the demotic and the hieroglyphics as well. The stone itself went to London, but copies of the texts were soon circulating all around Europe. Many scholars in various countries struggled to understand them. In England, the mathematician Thomas Young managed to decipher most of the demotic text, but the hieroglyphics were more difficult. One of the biggest problems was that there were nearly three times as many hieroglyphs as Greek or demotic symbols. This meant that very quickly it was almost impossible to say exactly how the symbols corresponded to one another. Also, in hieroglyphics, there was usually nothing to show where one word finished and the next began. However, sometimes a group of symbols was surrounded by a line forming a box with curving ends. The French called these boxes cartouches. Young guessed that the cartouches might contain the names of pharaohs. By comparing them with the Greek text, he managed to identify the names Ptolemy and Cleopatra. This showed Young that hieroglyphics were not just pictures that represented things, but that some of the symbols were letters, representing sounds as in an alphabet. This was a considerable breakthrough, but the biggest stumbling block was that no one in the world could still speak ancient Egyptian. Although it might be possible to identify the odd symbol and guess what sound it represented, nobody could put them together to say with any certainty what they really meant. Also, there were quite a lot of bad copies of other hieroglyphic texts in circulation, some of which were completely meaningless, like the obelisk in Rome. All of this added to the confusion. Some of the scholars working on the problem were extremely secretive about their studies, they were desperate to be the first to decipher the texts, and so gain undying fame. However, quite a lot of them, Thomas Young included, were prepared to share their discoveries, if it might increase the chance of success. 
Young sent his findings to a French scholar in Paris named Jean-François Champollion. Champollion was obsessed with solving this problem. As a boy, he had hardly attended school, but was educated by his elder brother Jacques, who was himself enthralled by ancient Egypt. Inspired by his elder brother's enthusiasm, Champollion had learned to speak Coptic, the language of the ancient Christian community that still remained in Egypt. He was convinced that although the language must have changed over the centuries, it was the nearest equivalent to ancient Egyptian that could still be found. By comparing the Rosetta Stone to many other Egyptian texts, in 1821, Champollion managed to produce a table that contained over 300 hieroglyphic and demotic symbols, which he believed represented the same sounds. But when he arranged the hieroglyphs together, try as he might, he still couldn't tell what they meant. However, he never gave up hope. He was certain that his knowledge of Coptic would eventually give him a grasp of the ancient language, and that he would grow to understand it. On the 14th of September, 1822, Champollion was reading in his study. He had been working day and night. He was exhausted and should really have gone to bed. However, he had just received some copies of hieroglyphic texts taken from wall carvings in a temple in the south of Egypt, at Abu Simbel. He decided he must look at them. These texts were very ancient indeed, 1,500 years older than the inscription on the Rosetta Stone. Suddenly, to his astonishment, he found that he could read the names in the cartouches, names he knew and recognized from ancient Greek texts, the pharaohs Ranaces and Tutmos. He understood in a flash of inspiration just how the hieroglyphics fitted together and what they meant. He rushed from his home through the streets of Paris until he reached his brother's house. Flinging open the door, he shouted, Je tiens l'affaire! I've got it! Then he fainted and fell unconscious to the floor. A week later, Jean-François Champollion presented to the Academy in Paris a letter explaining his discovery, in which he explained, Hieroglyphic writing is a script simultaneously figurative, symbolic, and phonetic, in one and the same text, in one and the same sentence, and, I should say, almost in one and the same word. Champollion was rewarded with the job of curator of the Egyptian collection at the Louvre Museum in Paris. Four years later, he actually went to Egypt for the first time, there he travelled far south and visited Abu Simbel, where he saw for himself the original inscriptions that had finally triggered his understanding. When he returned to France, he started to write his great work, the Egyptian grammar. Sadly, he died before it was finished, and the book was completed and published by his brother Jacques in 1836. The extraordinary mass of ancient Egyptian literature was available to be read for the first time in nearly 2,000 years. For a short time after this, Egypt and all things Egyptian again became fashionable all over Europe. Architecture, furniture, paintings and even clothes were decorated with mummies and pyramids. The English poet Robert Southey complained, The ladies wear crocodile ornaments, and one must sit on sphinxes in a room hung with mummies are enough to make the children afraid to go to bed. All sorts of adventurers and fortune hunters went to Egypt at this time looking for objects to feed the craving of wealthy Europeans for ancient Egyptian art. 
The most famous and successful of these was an Italian named Giovanni Bertoni. Bertoni was a larger-than-life character. Nearly two meters tall, in his youth he had worked as a circus strongman under the stage name the Patagonian Samson. His speciality was picking up twelve audience members at a time. In 1812 he traveled to Egypt and began a new career digging up and transporting statues to Europe. In 1821 he held a great exhibition of his discoveries in London where he sold off his entire collection. However, at the same time, a genuine interest had begun to develop in the history of Egypt for its own sake, rather than just the selfish desire to gain from or copy their treasures. People began to visit Egypt with a more thoughtful approach to the past. This careful, painstaking investigation into ancient Egypt grew into what today we call the science of archaeology. This was as much to do with the enthusiasm of amateur historians as it was with scholarship, very wealthy enthusiasts gave money to universities to fund research, and some of these patrons joined in archaeological expeditions themselves. In 1842, the German Emperor Kaiser Wilhelm IV sent a huge expedition to Egypt under the guidance of a scholar named Karl Lepsius. Its mission was to excavate and study tombs, temples and ancient monuments. The work Lepsius produced was the most detailed and comprehensive study ever undertaken of ancient Egypt, and it is still used by Egyptologists today. Thirty years later, an English lady named Amelia Edwards travelled to Egypt. Hiring a boat, she sailed down the Nile as far as the mighty temple of Ramesses at Abu Simbel. The account she wrote of her journey was an international bestseller, and it made her a huge amount of money. Later, she used this fortune to set up the Egypt Exploration Fund, which helped to preserve and study Egyptian remains rather than simply taking them away as souvenirs. This led to the establishment of archaeology as a subject in British universities. But the growth of this new science could not replace the excitement of digging for hidden treasure. The most famous discovery ever made in Egypt, and arguably the most famous archaeological discovery of all time, was made by the classic team of a scholar and his wealthy patron. Tutankhamun was not really a very important pharaoh in his own lifetime. Only nine years old when he came to the throne, he died when he was still in his teens. Analysis of his mummy suggests that he broke his leg and the wound became infected. For most of his reign, Egypt was ruled by a regent named Ai, and the young prince would have been getting just old enough to take over power himself when he died. However, the discovery of his tomb by the archaeologist Howard Carter and his patron Lord Carnarvon made Tutankhamun one of the most famous men who ever lived. By extraordinary good luck, his tomb, which was situated in the Valley of the Kings, had lain undiscovered by thieves. It was found to contain some of the most beautiful and magnificent examples of ancient art ever seen.